Good morning. It is our pleasure to have one of America's finest preachers sharing God's truth with us this morning. The Reverend Dr. John Guest serves as rector and senior pastor of Christ Church at Grove Farm in Swickley, Pennsylvania, just north of Pittsburgh. There's more. There's a more complete bio in your weekly news sheet, but we can tell you that he has ministered to over a million people in his years as a traveling evangelist and carries the endorsements of the Billy Graham Association, Luis Palau, John Stott, J.I. Packard, Stuart Briscoe, R.C. Sproul, and Rick J. Crocker. <laughs> he has been a keynote speaker for the Christian and Missionary Alliance at one of their general councils, and he comes to us this morning to rightly divide the Word of God and to challenge our hearts. Will you give a warm, eerie welcome to the Reverend Dr. John Guest. First time I came to this city... Uh, I had just come to the USA. I was reminded of this uh, playing uh, golf yesterday with Dr. John Tucker, who was speaking about the city mission. I came here out of nowhere. I was still single, just roving around the USA. To be the speaker at the city banquet, the city mission banquet, as a fundraiser for the mission. How amazing, because I remember that keenly, the people that I met. Those were very early days. It's great to be back here now at your church, here at First Alliance. And I met at the earlier service a Scottish lady. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the Scots have a problem with the English. (laughs) Are you aware of that? (laughs) But she was very complimentary and encouraging. So I really want to speak about encouraging you. Because encouragement is fantastic. To be lifted up and cheered on. I mean, for instance, I'll tell you the problem between the English and the Scots. And that this woman would come and say something really pleasant. Uh, We really beat up on the Scots over the years. Brutally. A lot of bloodshed in Scotland by deceptive, corrupt English kings. And it was like this. There was one chap who was preaching for Member of Parliament just south of the border that is in England, but south of the Scottish border. And what he was really doing was promoting himself as a member of Parliament. And in a little village hall, the place was absolutely packed out. And being south of the border, he was accentuating his Britishness. So that was one of his stump speeches. I was born an Englishman, he said. I was raised an Englishman. And I shall die in Englishman. 
And a wee Scottish voice at the back of the hall piped up and said, Ach man, have you no ambition? (laughs) Tell you, don't mess with the Scots. But in a sense, that was, while it was a put-down, it is an encouragement to have some ambition. Well, there was nothing he could do about being English any more than I can do, although I have become an American. Joined you. Have an American wife, four American daughters, and they all spend American money. It's (laughs) wonderful. I was actually a soccer coach for a while. Uh, One season, in fact, as an interim at a college called Covenant College on Lookout Mountain, Tennessee. And again, I was still single. And I told these, these lads at their soccer camp before school started that I was going to turn them into a well-honed European soccer machine. That was my game. And in fact, it was Stuart Briscoe who'd recommended me knowing of my soccer background in England. So... I uh, went out to the first game and what really surprised me were the cheerleaders. Because we don't have cheerleaders in England. Do you know cheerleaders are an American phenomenon? Nowhere else in the world do they dress up pretty girls scantily and have them jig along a line on the side of a game, occasionally look up at the crowd and get them going. That doesn't happen in Europe. The crowd gets behind their team, you hear it, their soccer teams. But the idea of scantily clad women doing a jig on the side of the line is like beyond them. So here I am running a soccer match. I've been screaming at these guys all through camp. Now we're on the field. Now we're in the middle of the game. And just to my left, down the line, were all these gorgeous, semi-clad women cheering them on, getting the students there going. Well, I'm having some fun at that expense, but wouldn't it be great if we had cheerleaders in church here each Sunday morning? I mean, get the image that the pastor gets up to preach and the cheerleaders come out and say, Go, pastor, go, pastor, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the crowd begins to clap and say, Yeah. I mean, some of you may have that in your heart. Like, what's great about preaching in a black church is they say, Bring it on. Are you saying, yes, yeah, and you, they, they, they really come back at you. Really spectacular. You're, you sound like you're fun here, anyway. But to, to cheer on. Now, I'm here, grateful to Rick Crocker for the invitation to come and be the speaker. I've joined the team for the morning. I've come in as a cheerleader. I want to inspire you encourage you, cheer you on as a team here to go for it together for the Lord and to inspire you to believe 
all the more what you say you believe and more passionately, aggressively pursue it. That's the deal. So now I've put my cards on the table. That's what I want to do. We're coming out of uh, John chapter 4 and that passage that was read for us and most of you know this about the woman at the well Peter, Paul and Mary back in the old days that is when I was younger uh, sang a song about the woman at the well and it's a tragic story in many ways but brilliant in others. So we pick up the text at verse 27 as, as it was read to us. John chapter 4 verse 27 So if you take a look at that, and if you've got your Bibles open, I'll be making reference to some other passages here. But he says, Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. Just then his disciples returned. Now that's a great little interlude in the middle of a story. Because what Jesus has done is send his disciples to go and get some lunch. So they've gone off to get lunch. Jesus is sitting by a well. And verse 7 it says, A Samaritan woman came to draw water and said to him, and Jesus said to her rather, Will you give me a drink? For his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. So that sets the stage. And what preceded the just then his disciples came back is they had been shopping for lunch and while they were shopping for lunch this woman arrives where Jesus is taking a rest. Coming out in the middle of the day you wouldn't have needed a contemporary sociologist to tell you that her life was in trouble. Because all the nice ladies had been out early in the morning talking about how well their husbands were doing, Johnny in school, new addition on the house, vacation they're going to take, all that stuff. She comes out in the middle of the day all by herself, alone. In the heat of the day. Alone. So there's a story there. She didn't know when she got up that morning that she had an appointment with Jesus. An appointment she desperately needed. Because the story about her life is this. She had been through five husbands. In verse 16 he says, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Can you imagine, ladies, surviving five husbands? I mean, really. Some of you wonder how you survived the one you have. Isn't that true? Because us guys know us guys. A guy can say that. So we know what guys are like. And now she's living with a man who's not her husband. Shacked up, as we say today. And Jesus knows it. So you know this woman is a wreck. Because she can't hide in Chicago or even Erie or Youngstown. Psyche's just virtually a village. 
You can't just travel around as a lone single woman in, a, in that society. So she's trapped with her history. She's trapped with her life. She's just got to live it out knowing that everybody knows everything about her in her town. And they don't want anything to do with her. That's why she's coming out on her own. Isn't it great to think that this wreck of a woman, when she got up that morning, though she didn't know it, had an appointment with Jesus that would so radically transform her life that it's become part of Holy Scripture. Jesus has given in their encounter, their conversation, unbelievable training and teaching. And that the rest of the town comes to know Jesus. In three or four days there was a spiritual awakening and that Samaritan town was transformed. All because it began with an encounter of a wrecked, broken-hearted woman who'd just been used and discarded. Was alone and no hope of anything ever being any different till she ran into Jesus. Now here's the first point. No one is so far gone that Jesus cannot rescue them. No one. That's the first encouragement. You've got people in your life who may be just like this woman and you may be just like this woman or the guys who discarded this woman. All of us have got a history and we wouldn't want it up on this screen behind me. I remember Dr. Tony Campolo speaking at my church in, in Pittsburgh on one occasion. He said, and he was very dramatic, he said, if John Guest's life came up on that screen, he said, you wouldn't want to hear him. And he was telling the truth. He doesn't know anything about my life. He just had to be telling the truth. And then he said, and if your life came up on the screen, he wouldn't want to be speaking to you anyway. <laughs> We've all got a story. But we look so good in church. This woman was not hiding anything. And what is amazing is it's in their conversation because Jesus engages her about her giving him a drink. It quickly gets deep. And he said to her, if you knew who it was who spoke to you, you would have asked him and he would give you living water. And then he went on to say, if you drink the water I give you to drink, you will never thirst again, but out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That's a huge turn on. That's from like being desperately parched to becoming exuberant with a fountain-like expression of life. That's what he's describing. And she bought into it. Out of this conversation, she ends up going back to the village 
I'm bringing them. Now, you listening to me preach would never guess what my life has been. My dad committed suicide when I was seven. He left my mother with three children, of which I was the oldest at age seven. My mother married again, and that marriage was a fight all the way to the divorce court later. I remember my stepfather knocking me down in the kitchen and kicking me before I ever got out to school and I'm off to school kind of sobbing. I remember the fights. I remember my mother throwing hot tea into his face. We never went to church. We never prayed. We didn't have a Bible in the home. We were an irreligious family and very dysfunctional. And since my dad died during the Second World War, we were raised in poverty till my mother married again. So that though I was into soccer, I couldn't play in the school soccer team as a little boy because I didn't have any soccer shoes. In fact, I can remember the first time my mother bought a soccer boost. My brother and I, an 18-month-old younger brother than me, 18 months younger than me, brother. So now we got soccer boots. We didn't have a soccer ball. So we went out in the back garden and played soccer without a soccer ball, put our boots on. He got in gold, threw down some jackets and made a make-believe goal. And I was kicking fantastic shots into the goal and he was diving and saving them. I said, wasn't that a fantastic shot? He said, wasn't that a great save? I'm telling the truth. That we came from such a wrecked existence, you could hardly imagine it. Here I am preaching the gospel. And I haven't even told you about my stuff. Just the roots of my family life. No one is so far gone that Jesus cannot reach them. That brother of mine got himself into such mischief. He ended up in a fight on the docks of London walked into a hospital, that's where I went in to visit him when I found out he was dangerously ill. The medical ward orderly, a male, said, my brother had walked in holding his face together. The teeth in the bottom of his mouth were sticking in the jaws, in the gums in the top, and his jaws were broken in three places. By the time I got there, he was wired and talking like this. There was a day my brother gave his life to Jesus. He actually became a very successful businessman. 
came over to the USA with his wife and three children. And we went to Disney World, played golf, hung out together. But one Sunday evening, toward the end of our time together, I invited about three or four families in and in, told them, I'd like, to, like you to introduce yourself to my brother by telling my brother and his wife, Chris, how you got to know Jesus. They didn't even know I was going to do this. I think it was spontaneous, actually. So, they end up talking about how they came to faith and how Jesus changed their lives. My brother said after that wonderful two-week vacation we had together, that was the most significant part. I preached a sermon in my own church that was just for him. The one time in my life I've preached a sermon for one person. He asked Jesus to come into his life at the end of that sermon. We gave him a New Testament, J.B. Phillips translation, contemporary translation. He later, trying to find that, said to his wife, do you know where that book is that John and Kathy gave us? By Phillips. He didn't even know to call it a New Testament. But she knew where it was. He got it, started reading it, and he's into Matthew's Gospel, which is where the New Testament begins. When he hears God speak out loud to him, audibly, I've never had God speak audibly to me. My brother heard God say, Jesus is my son and your saviour. And he took that New Testament, went up to the bedroom, knelt down by his bed, and he wrote me a note a couple of weeks later saying, I wept for the wasted years. By then he was in his early 40s. He came to know Jesus. His life was more wrecked than mine. And then a couple of years after that, we had an evangelistic mission in Bristol, England, where I was ministering. I'm already ordained now. I'm in the ministry. And I'm running the counselors at the front of this large auditorium, the Colston Hall, a music hall in, in Bristol. My mother's home visiting with us, that is, in Bristol... And I bring her to the meeting. I'm down front marshalling the counsellors and putting them on to the various people who are coming forward at the end of the meeting. And walking down the middle aisle into my arms came my mother and surrendered her life to Jesus. My mother's life was really a lot like the woman at the well. Nobody is so far gone that Jesus cannot reach them. Who is there in your life? Immediately I say that. Who is it you think of? Maybe one of your own children. It may be your mother or father. It may be somebody you really care about with whom you work. It may be a cousin or an aunt. There's someone in your life right now that in your mind you've given up on. They may be successful, bold and belligerent and godless and in trouble. So nobody's so far gone that Jesus can't reach them. Here's the other amazing thing when you look through this. 
Actually, when Jesus nails her, because that's what he does when he starts speaking about her husband, plus husbands, plus living guy, she starts talking religion. I don't know if you've ever spotted that, those of you who are into this. Verse 19, Sir, the woman said, I see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where you must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And he, they, she knew that was a hot button. She was a Samaritan. So she knew to talk the religious differences between Samaritans and Jews. Later on, she starts talking about the Messiah when he comes will teach us all things. She knew that was a Jewish hot button. That a Messiah was coming. She knew enough about it. How was it this woman, with the life that we've just described, knew all this religion? Maybe she was a child of a very devout family. She knew what the story was, she got into it. But the point being is this, how can you end up, when you are so messed up, and somebody sort of is now in your face about your life, just talking religion? It's an evasion. All kinds of religious people will talk religion to avoid the real issue, and that is about their life and their relationship to the Lord. It's easy to talk about religion. It's easy to talk about whether Buddhists or Muslims or Jews go to heaven or not. Or to discuss the different kinds of Christianity that there is, that they see on TV, or that have maybe experienced. All kinds of people whose lives are in deep distress know how to talk religion. Some of them actually go to church. Here's the line. Nobody is so steeped in their religious culture and tradition that Jesus can't cut through it. Something of a showstopper when she said to him, you know, uh, the Messiah is coming and when he comes he'll lead us into all the truth. Look at verse 26. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he kind of ends that conversation. <laughs> now she knows she's up against it, if he really is. That's why she goes running back through the town, saying, come and meet a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could he be the Messiah? I heard a man speak last week by the name of Ergen Kaner. Dr. Ergen Kaner. He was raised in a Muslim family. His father was a mullah. He hated Christians. He hated Jews. He was trained to hate, taught to hate, inbred to hate Christians and Jews. He said so plainly. But there was a kid in his school when he was in school, because his family came to America, another kid in the high school who never stopped reaching out to him and trying to get him either to the youth group 
or to camp on a weekend, or for a week, he just kept on keeping on. And Irving Cana came to the place in high school where he surrendered his life to Jesus. That man is the most brilliant, outspoken advocate of the Christian faith. I'm trying to get into my church, but he's so busy. I was listening to him down in Washington, D.C., speaking to about a group of four or five hundred pastors from around the USA, trying to lift our spirits and encourage us to go for it in the face of the other religious cultures that are invading America and not to give up. That the gospel is the power of God to salvation and Jesus is the only way to eternal life. There's a fatwa being put out on his life. He got a letter saying that uh, they're going to cut off his wife's head, his children's head, and then kill him. He kind of hung around with a lot of protection and in hiding as best he could. Until another brother shared with him the conviction that he's blood-bought by Jesus, And until Jesus takes him home, he's bulletproof. So here's this man up there speaking boldly in Washington, D.C., saying, I am blood-bought and bulletproof till the Lord takes me home. But he is a living example that Jesus can cut through the whole of that religious stuff All we've got to do is be faithful. That's what happened to me. A man witnessed to me when I was nearly 16 years of age. So I was a 15-year-old lad. I was working with him. I came up with a mouthful of foul language to be one of the men. He said, John, I just assume you don't work with me. I'm, excuse me. When you work with me, I just assume you don't swear. I said, why not? He said, I'm a Christian. Can you believe it? I started talking religion with him. I said, so am I. (laughs) He said, why would you think that? I said, well, I believe in God, which I did in that vague general sense, that there's got to be some sort of prior being who made everything. I said, and besides that, I'm English. (laughs) Which, back in those days, really meant something. We figured we were a Christian country. So when I asked him what made him a Christian, because he said, that didn't make me a Christian. I said, what what makes you a Christian? He said, take the word Christian. A Christian is a Christian. A Christian is into Christ, like a soccer player is into soccer. I was into soccer. I knew what soccer was about. I lived it. All my moves were like, I'm on a soccer field. I knew I wasn't a Christian, just with that simple statement. Because I wasn't into Christ. And then, across the space of a year, we got into all kinds of arguments and discussions. I was rude, I was unpleasant, I demeaned his dignity, his intellect, and everything else about him. And he never stopped being who he was and never stopped being faithful, and never gave up on me, and never gave up on the gospel. 
I've been to seminary, done all kinds of religious stuff, been a pastor forever, preaching forever, and nobody's added to the gospel that Ray Wilson shared with me. That Jesus came that I might have life in all its fullness, that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins, that Jesus is alive and I can invite him to come into my life, and when he comes in, I get this life that's abundant, Nobody's ever added to that because that's the pure, simple, straight-ahead gospel. That's what captured Urban Cana. Urban Cana. It captured me. The next step was I, we moved to London. I went to engineering school and fell in love with a girl across the street who was gorgeous. We dated for maybe two or three months and then she dumped me. I made a couple of sexual moves on her in that time and she pushed my hands away and said that she went to church. Can you imagine I'm dating a church girl? When she dumped me, I found out which church it was and went there. And I sat the back left-hand corner Right where that guy is, but you don't all have to look around, but he sees me pointing at him because he knows where he is. Checking out, where was Shirley White? When the minister got up to preach, he preached what this other guy had witnessed to. He preached it. I modeled my preaching after his preaching. Pretty much straight ahead, what does it say? What does it mean? How do you apply it? And say it like you mean it. That's what I heard. If you're listening to me, you're listening to my preacher who, and I'd never heard preachers. I thought, wow, this is preaching. Because I never went to church. It's great to hear a great preacher when you first go. I could have actually gone to some really miserable ones along the way to that church, as it turns out. And then it was he who invited me to go and hear Billy Graham. You sent a missionary, you chaps did, over to England. And in 1954, age 18, I gave my life to Jesus. But can you imagine, I got into all kinds of religious discussion while I'm arguing with Ray Wilson and whomever else. I knew nothing, but I could argue. Because I was evading the real issue. And Jesus can cut through it. That's great news. And the last thing is this. Nobody is so messed up with such a history that God can't do great things through them. This woman ran back through the town saying, come and meet a man who's told me everything I've ever done. And the whole town comes out. When Jesus says, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, they're white and ready for harvest, encouraging people to to be about the master's business. That's verse 35, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields, they are ripe for harvest. He's not talking about grain fields. He's talking about people pouring out of the town to come and hear Jesus. Now here's an astounding thing. Listen to this. I'm just amazed at this. The disciples had gone to the same town for lunch. And guess what they came back with? Lunch. In fact, they got upset at Jesus when he said, I've got food to eat that you don't know anything about. They'd assumed somebody else had brought him dinner. 
They were actually irritated that they, he didn't need the food they brought him. And when these folks flooded out, they kept bothering Jesus in the language of this narrative here. It's present continuous. He, they kept on saying to him, Master, sit down and eat. They just kept on keeping on. They were more concerned about having lunch with Jesus than all these people pouring out and coming around Jesus. That woman brought the town back. Can you imagine? She got up that morning, a wreck, met Jesus, and by afternoon she was an evangelist. Vulnerable, vulnerable about what her life had been. She didn't make any bones about it. They all knew what she was. In fact, I guarantee you, when she went running through the town saying, come and meet the man who told me everything I've ever done, there were some men in that town who, when they heard that, said, shut her up. <laughs> the rest came out, just like looking at the scandal sheet as you walk out through the checkout line in the supermarket. Man, if, they, if he's talking about what she's been doing, man, that, that is something to hear. I've always wondered what she was up to. You know how people are. I mean, I'm just making believe here, but they came out. And at the end of this chapter they gather around the woman and say we first believe because you said he told you everything you'd ever done we've believed and heard for ourselves verse 42 we no longer believe just because of what you said now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world what a deal So you don't have to be a preacher to lead people to Christ. You don't have to be a Christian forever to be able to tell somebody about him. What did she do? Three things. Number one, she just said who she was. He told me everything I've ever done. She was frank about her life. And then she said, come and meet him. Come and see. Could it be? All you've got to do is invite people to come and see. One way or another. Come and see. Take the risk. She laid it all out. She risked everything, really. Not that she had much to risk when you think about it. But she did. Let me close with this. I was introduced speaking at the Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church with Dr. D. James Kennedy, the pastor. And I'm not just dropping names because I expect when I go from here I'm going to say, I was speaking at First Alliance, Erie, you know. And people go, wow. How'd you get that job? But I was speaking down there and Dr. Kennedy introduced me like this. He said in 1985, sorry, Start again. In 1855, a timid school teacher by the name of Ed Kimball, who taught Sunday school on his lunch break, went into a shoe shop in Boston and led a lad to Christ who was a shoe salesman. Ed Kimball, 
Mark that name. You've probably never heard of it. But the man he led to Christ was D.L. Moody. Moody became the world famous evangelist. Moody influenced a man by the name of Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday became an evangelist. Had a tremendous impact. Billy Sunday influenced a man by the name of Mordecai Ham. Probably another name you've never heard. Mordecai Ham became an evangelist and he went preaching in North Carolina in a tent. And an 18-year-old lad gave his life to Jesus one night. That 18-year-old lad was Billy Graham. Billy Graham went preaching in England and one night in May of 54 another 18-year-old lad gave his life to Jesus. And that lad is our preacher this evening. Where did my coming to Christ begin? Well, it began at Calvary if you go back far enough. But in terms of the history we know, it began with Ed Kimball going to the shoe shop and going after D.L. Moody, who got to Billy Sunday, who got to Mordecai Ham, who got to Billy Graham, who got to John Guest. You have no idea who you are touching with your life. All God calls us to do is be faithful. We may never know till we get to glory what it is God has done through our lives. But inasmuch as we are faithful and about his business, it's amazing what he can do for us and through us. So what are the three languages that we've spoken of here? Number one, nobody is so far gone that Jesus cannot reach them. Whether it's you or someone you know. Secondly, nobody is so full of religious clutter that Jesus cannot cut through it. Don't give up on people just because they're religious. And you can't get there. Be faithful. And thirdly, no one has such a wreckage of a past that Jesus cannot use them powerfully. And as far as you're concerned, I'm Exhibit A. No doubt you think you're Exhibit A. Because we all say that, don't we? God can get to me, he can get to anyone. That's the truth. Let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, it has been an amazing thing to spend the morning with you, worshipping you, singing of you, telling you that we love you, admire you, adore you, and want you to be our all in all. That's because you've reached into our hearts. We pray, Lord, in these moments of encouragement and cheerleading that you would give us the grasp 
of this simple fact that one by one by one we can touch others and without any awareness of all that may proceed from that. But given what we've said, Lord, understanding that the power of one witness, one word spoken for you, one person coming to you, can be an overwhelming mark in history. So grant to us to be faithful, to be bold and not to quit. And we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.